Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Phil Alexander, Chief Information Security Officer with North Mississippi Health Services. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. Phil, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, Good. Looking forward to it. Um, Do you want to start off by telling me a little bit about your organization and your role? Sure. Uh, I am, uh, as you said, Chief Information Security Officer here at North Mississippi Health Services. We are uh, the largest health system in the in the uh, rural health system in this region. We uh, have seven hospitals spanning northeast Mississippi and north Alabama. Um, Of course, many, many clinics, hundreds of clinics and and nursing homes. And we're also a payer as well as a provider. Um, Lots and lots of uh, history, almost 100 years old. Um, and uh, very proud of our, our region and the, and the, the people and, and uh, clients in which we serve. Excellent. So uh, I think the rural thing will come up in our discussion. I know there's some unique challenge that challenges around cyber that rural organizations face. So, Absolutely. But I want to ask you uh, sort of a, a wide-ranging and just, just see where you want to go. So um, you could either answer what are some of the trends you're looking at or some of the things you're working on, if you're comfortable with that. But just in general, sort of what's on your mind? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, I try to I try to keep my team focused on the basics. Right. And it's not the sexy stuff. Nobody likes to talk about the basics, but uh, it's the basic old school stuff that's been going on since the you know 90s, early 2000s. I mean, do we have the same? Do we have? Heck, do we have antivirus on everything? Are we patching? Are we updating? You know, are we, uh, are, you know, how's our firewalls? I mean, all of these things are people like, no, everybody should have that. Yeah, should is the key word. And so I try to focus on that. But at the same time, all of the the uh, the Hollywood lights and smokes and mirrors pop up like AI, you know, and like robots. And we can't we can't ignore the new stuff. Um, and so when those things come up and I call them fad stuff and I'm not saying AI is a fad. I'm not saying it's going to go away. I'm not saying bots are going to go away. We're using some of those in our hospital. Um, those things are starting to happen um, and we have to address them from a security uh, perspective. But at the same time, we don't want to get over too far in advance. We don't want to go too far too quickly because a lot of things are I think about, for instance, um, Google Glass. I remember when Google yeah. Glass first first popped up, right? <laughs> Everybody wanted to use Google Glass in the healthcare setting. I had physicians. I was in an academic medical facility at the time, and we had physicians who were also teachers at the university. And so they wanted to use Google Glass during their surgery. You know, uh, great use cases. I mean, I'm not saying they weren't great ideas, uh, but that quickly faded, right? It didn't last long. And so you think about uh, ChatGPT and some of the other uh, technologies that are coming around, and, and we've got the same kind of thing. We've got physicians wanting to use it uh, today, and so you, we have to address those those uh, pop-ups, as I call them. I think AI is here to stay, and I think there, it's just going to flush itself out into our culture, and, and we're going to have regulations. We're going to have processes in how we do it. But I don't like to keep my I don't like my team or 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 the hospital to focus too much on those those big pop-ups like that. I, let's keep focused on the day-to-day, boring, everyday kind of stuff that 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 really, at the end of the day, is the core foundation of security. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Uh, what if you had put your whole team on Google Glass and said, exactly. "We're not, we're not doing anything else. I want you guys on this." Fixate it. Let's see how we can secure it. Let's work on it. Do all this stuff and spend a lot of time, you know. And uh, exactly, <laughs> good stuff. So. 
blocking and tackling is important. Everybody knows it's important, but it's not easy. Why is it hard to get blocking and tackling right? Well, I just before I before I joined this call, I was just on our annual uh, budgetary call with the CFO. And so I think that's the key is like when you're trying to explain to the CFO or CEO, those blocking and tackling things a lot. First of all, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to get funding for new sexy initiatives, right? Virtual care, you know, something new that's going to, these robots, it's going to, you know, we have staffing problems. So let's get some bots to take over. Uh, those, those make sense because those are cost saving initiatives, but, Oh, we need more, uh, space or we need storage or we need uh, VMs or we need to upgrade from a 08 server that's been around for a long time. You know, we need to get it off of that um, to something newer. Trying to explain these blocking and tackling basic stuff from a budgetary standpoint to a CFO or CEO is difficult. Second of all, um, even even in IT, I mean, a lot of times the basic stuff, um, you know, doesn't get the uh, uh, the, the the love it needs in, in IT because people want to work on the newer stuff that, you know, the basic stuff gets left behind. And there's so many projects. We are trying to work on projects that are, that are for the customer, whether you're in healthcare and for us, it's healthcare, but in healthcare, what's the, what's the, all the projects, a lot of the capital projects that come in, that's what gets project management uh, attention. The blocking and tackling never get listed on a, on a project management list for that for the next year, and so you have X amount of hours spent, you know, or budgeted uh, of resource time for capital projects. But unless you uh, have a very dedicated PMO process that also allocates the KTLO hours, you know, in your PMO process, then those get left behind, and so it's very difficult. You got finance, you got PMO, you've got IT. Everybody forgets about the, the the basic blocking and tackling items of your firewall maintenance, your you know um, your patching and ma patch management, all those basic stuff that's got to get done every single day that take time, but all the time goes into the sexy capital projects. So we got a good some good acronyms there. I don't know. Can we use B and T for blocking and tackling? Because I already got KTLO. <laughs> if we combine those, we got B and T KTLO. That's right. Right. So, Kate, yeah, yeah, that's right. I know. I'm, it sounds like uh, a radio I a, station. I get, KTLO. I get, um, KTLO. Yeah. That's right. WKTLO. Uh, <laughs> coming to you live. Uh, yeah. I, I, I get, I get harassed all the time. I, I used to work in the government. So I use a lot of, a lot of acronyms. But uh, yeah, Kate, for those who may not know, keep the lights <laughs> I on. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so B and T KTLO. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, we understand that. And, you're talking about bot robots and things like that. And maybe people get excited because they say, oh, there's a PR element to this, right? right. It's a marketing and a PR element to this and it's cool stuff. Like you want to put on a new server or, or so that, that's not so, you know, okay. Yeah. But as you said, it's, it's sort of, I guess it's part of your job to do that difficult explaining and that and explain why the boring stuff has to be funded. Right. So that's part of, your talent that you have to bring to the table is explaining it, I guess, turning that technical speak into maybe risk speak, right? So we turn That's like, right. why does this boring stuff, this network stuff important? Because it equates to increased risk if we don't do these things. And then maybe their ears perk up because they don't like risk, right? That's right. That's right. And and exactly right. So you hit on the point, I think a lot of CISOs, uh, 
that that make a mistake. I hear a lot of CISOs talk vulner use the word vulnerabilities, and they try to talk vulnerabilities. What's the vulner? This is vulnerable. That blah blah blah, but they don't talk risk. And senior senior executives understand risk to the organization. So you got to talk risk. That's the that's the word they understand. That's the model they understand to the business. And if you can explain it to them in a risk to the business, not to cyber but to the business because cyber risk is business risk. And so you've got to translate that in what's it going to cost and what's it going to do to our organization in time. Uh, if we're down, if we lose it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you've got to be able to explain that. That's what I was just doing on the budget call just now, not my security tools, but I had infrastructure guys had some stuff in the capital budget CFO going, why are we funding this? What are we doing this for? And, you know, the infrastructure director sitting there going, uh, I have to jump in and say, let me explain the cyber risk if we don't do this. It's not because the infrastructure guy just wants to go do a bunch of new stuff. I'm the one who said we need to do that. So it's really interesting. So most CISOs come up out of uh, sort of infrastructure, right? Networking infrastructure, they come out of out of that line. Um, that's not really where you learn how to speak business speak. <laughs> Right. right. This right. is a completely so you you elevate it at some point to this level where you need to almost learn a new language. And that's maybe right. that's why some people get their MBA or things like that. But if you don't learn that language, you could be the best CISO in the world, technically speaking. Correct. But if you can't communicate it, the eyes glaze over. They go, we're not funding that. We're going to fund these bots because they sound really, really cool. And, right. And then you have uh, breaches because you couldn't communicate properly. So I wonder. Uh, do you think this happens a lot where it's because of where CISOs get elevated from, maybe they don't learn the language or, or do we say they are probably not going to get the CISO position if they don't learn that language? Yeah. Great question. So uh, to your, to your point, I've, 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 I've built two programs. Now this is the second time I've built a, a program from the ground up. I've first CISO at North Mississippi health services and UMC health system where I've, from. I built that one from the ground up. And at both times, I've got vendors, I've got uh, auditors, others say, how are you doing when they come in and they see some of the stuff I'm doing? How are you doing it? And, and I'll tell you, once they learn my background, then they go, oh, okay, it makes sense. Almost like it's a cop out, almost like, oh, you get, you know, it's like an excuse. I didn't come from that IT technical background. Um, you know, my degrees in psychology. Um, I was, I was a car salesman for many years uh, and my dad owned a car dealership. And so between sales and, and, um, you know, reading a lot of Zig Ziglar, right. But uh, between yeah. sales, between sales and, and psychology. And, and then I was in the army uh, as an intelligence analyst, having to brief generals and pilots and, and others on, the intel threat, um, all of that makes me who I am. So I, I do understand background play, comes into play. And so what I do is when I talk to, in fact, I have a mentorship program that I, I work on. And every other Friday, I meet with four or five up and coming CISOs, um, folks who are trying to be, want to be CISOs or security managers or directors or want to be CISOs. And, and I tell them all the time, the same thing. I've got folks on there that are great technical minds, but they can't speak to as an executive level. They don't have executive presence. Um, and so, uh, you know, I provide them talk, send them books or, or resources that they need to talk through. Um, I've, I've even hired myself. I've hired a, an executive coach to talk through those things and figure out uh, where I'm lacking and where my gaps are at. Um, and so, you know, we have to understand where our gaps are. We can't just say, uh, you know, in my organization, this is going to work. There's different levels, and and those executives, if you can't speak on their level, 
you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be frustrated and go, why are not why am I not getting the funding and why am I not getting the support that I need? Because they don't understand a word that you're saying, you know. And it's so easy in that situation to blame them that's in right. your mind, right? That's they right. don't get it, they don't understand that that's not gonna get you anywhere. It's not gonna right. advance your cause. You have to look at yourself and say, Why they why don't they get it? Am I doing something wrong? Yeah, and I, I'm a big uh, Jocko Willick fan. If you know Jocko Willick, he no. he was an ex Navy SEAL. He wrote a book called um, Extreme Ownership, and so I buy that book for every new employee that comes on board. Any one of my analysts, and and we we do an offsite once a year just around that book, uh, Extreme Ownership, and we take ownership for if something if we try to sell something, whether it's an executive or an IT person, even my my IT analyst, if they go a security analyst, if they go to their IT cousins and they try to, hey, we need to do X, Y, Z, and they can't get it sold. It's not they who have a problem understanding. It's me who are having a problem selling it. And so I've even brought in a coach to my team to teach them the three-part elevator pitch, you know, uh, three-minute, you know, three-part or four-part elevator pitch in three minutes. You've got to learn to sell. You've got to learn to talk to your audience. And so uh, it's always my fault if they don't buy it. Um, and so that's the, that's what we have to understand. What did I do wrong? What can I do better next time to get that that message sold? So it's interesting. A lot of people who aren't forced to do sales at any point or don't wind up doing sales, they think it's a dirty word, right? Right. Because especially you were in the car business. Uh, so you know, I had that perception. You know, because I you know I was a journalist by training, and so I thought the whole sales element was dirty. Um, but you really got to get over that. Every job, yeah. everything you do, everybody's selling everything. one way or another. And selling is communicating. Um, so you, you, but you were exposed to it at a yeah. young age. So you never That's had right. that sort of association of unpleasantness. Um, what were right. some and of the, you work for your dad? <laughs> no, I didn't actually. When I oh, was, uh, yeah. yeah. So when I was, when I was 16, I dropped out of high school and, uh, you know, was a bum on the couch. And, uh, and my, my dad, uh, one day called the, called the house and asked my mom said, what's Phil doing? Well, he's uh, still on the couch watching TV. Right. And so he said, come to my, send him to my office. So I go into my dad's office and I go in there and, and, and which is never a pleasant experience at 16, you know, and, and, uh, he says, um, you know, he gives me the speech, which happens to happen to be a, a linchpin moment in my life. Um, and he gave me this speech that everybody in town is hiring. You just need to go and 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 get hired. Uh, they everybody's hiring. They've everybody in their mind, every manager in their mind's got somebody on their team. They're trying to they'd love to oh, get yeah. rid of if yeah. they can find the right person. Yeah. And so he said, I want you to do. I want you to find this place here in town that you want to work at. You go there and find out what time they open up. Be there 30, 45 minutes early and find where the manager puts his key in the door and you're standing right there. So the next morning I went to one of his competitors and I went to that car dealership. I didn't tell him. Right. Because because I was just going to do it to spite my dad. And so I go to the competitor and I was there at 530 in the morning because that's when Les Solens, the manager, was there. He was putting his key in the door and I told him, I said, uh, yeah, I'm looking for a job, you know, a little 16 year old, just, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And it was dark. And Les says, sorry, I don't have any, I don't anything for you. Okay, great. I was excited. I proved my dad wrong. They're not hiring. You said everybody was. So then I, my dad told me at lunch supper said, what, what'd you do? I told him, he said, good, go back tomorrow. Ah. Like, what? He said, go back tomorrow. I went back every single day for six days straight. And then I said, Dad, he's getting mad. Do you uh -huh. understand? He's getting mad. He goes, I'll tell you what. You go back tomorrow and you tell him, listen, I'm not coming back. This is my last day. You've just lost the best per salesperson you'll ever have. 
and less hired me that day uh, and changed my life. And, and, and I went to work for him. And uh, it was a, it was a life changing experience that, you know, if you want it, you got to go get it and you can't make excuses. You just go do it, you know. And, uh, and of course, then that got me into the sales game. Um, but uh, but anyway, so, yeah, I, I did have that experience early on and it's helped me. But but again, there's other experiences I didn't have. I was still shy, even though I, I sold cars. I, you know, I finally went to college and I took some public speaking lessons. I couldn't speak very well. Um, and so in college, I decided to take some public speaking courses because I knew that was a gap I had. Um, and so there throughout my life, I still look and say, what am I? Where am I weak at? Let me go work uh -huh. on that. And you know, it's funny. We're talking here and we're talking about cybersecurity. And what yeah. are we talking about really is leadership stuff. Right. Yeah. And that's yeah. what it's all about. I'm, I'm writing a book right now. A little shameless plug. I'm writing a book right now <laughs> on the key components of a successful cybersecurity program, and it's all about leadership. As I'm going through each chapter, I'm like, I'm not writing anything about patch management or anything like that. S security leaders, and I'm talking about even managers and, and below, if they cannot work with their with their IT brothers and sisters and get them to understand why that should be baked in, if we can't operationalize security with our operational components, if we can't do it with their executives, we're going to fail. And it's not just knowing, like you said, uh, Anthony, it's not just knowing the technical side. If we cannot operationalize what we do by selling it to the executives or even our counterparts in IT, we're going to fail. And it's our fault. And so part of that is understanding our leadership abilities and our sales you know, components. How do we sell? Yeah. And then you talk about interacting with IT. What about interacting with clinicians? I mean, that's exactly. even a whole, that's a whole, that's a much further elevated skill set right there, right? That's right. That's right. But I think today we have it much easier than, you know, I've been doing this for over 20 years, much easier today because of, you know, the, the word is out. Right. Yeah. And I've even got pro providers now, physicians that come to me and say, hey, I work on EMRX. That's my, my platform. Do we have it backed up? I had one the other day ask me that. That would have never happened 10 years ago for a, a for a doctor to be asking if we had software backed up. But he was concerned that what he does for a living could stop because he's got, you know, people that he knows, other physicians in other hospitals that got breached and had ransomware and there was no backups. And so he wanted to make sure he was okay. So he started understanding that. So I think today we have it a little bit different because it's hit the news. There's doctors who have other friends who are in other hospitals that have been breached. Um, and so they've gotten the word. So it's a little bit easier, to, I think, to talk to those clinicians than it was in the past. And I think that's absolutely right on because I mean, they say, you know, you have to frame things risk. You talk about framing things risk uh, in a risk sense for executives. Well, when you're trying to talk to the clinicians, they say you frame it up in patient safety. Right. right. But as you said, it's not a hard sell anymore. I think any clinician that puts five minutes into thinking about it is scared to death yep. of losing the systems that they use to do their work every day because they have no idea how to do their work without the computers right they don't so as That's much right. as everyone talks about backup procedures and tabletops and things like that i think i think everyone's in real trouble once the system goes down no matter what right. kind of things you've no done matter what it is. because i don't know how much people are really running through clinicians getting them to know how to work on paper i don't right. think that's happening do you right right 
No, no, that's right. And so I have I have a BCDR manager that works for me, and she's doing these business impact analysis. I went ahead and sp- uh, said that out, <laughs> BIA, right? But our business <laughs> impact analysis with our operational folks, she does all the major silos uh, or or, or uh, you know system level areas every year, and goes and talks to them and says, "Listen, if you lost it, how long can we be down? How much data can you lose? All of those different RTO RPO kind of discussions with them, right? Um, and you know, when we talk to the doctors, they're like, um, I think IT handles all that, right? I mean, it's just that it's, it's not, you know, I understand, but I'm asking you, how much can you, how much are you, what's your appetite for loss? Uh, and, and of course, then they're, you know, they get the the, the saucer eyes, you know, when yes. you start talking about it, then it, then it becomes real. And I think if you have those conversations, and that's what I was talking about operationalized. If we don't have those conversations operationally, like I have a cybersecurity council uh, and that meets every two weeks. It's got my executives on it. Uh, and I've had CISOs go, good Lord, I wish I could have that, have that discussion with your executives and they are my governance council. I, you know, we're about to stand up on IM's uh, a subcommittee uh, for IM steering and having a bunch of, cl- uh, uh, you know, nurses and others on that committee, not IT people, have mm-hmm. the operational people pull back the curtain, put them on those committees, on those councils, on those governance councils. And it, it changes the conversation real quick because all of a sudden they see the risk. You're explaining to them every month what's going on, not just some quarterly report. These aren't reporting. This is decisions. Here's what's going on. And so I think that's the key is, is bringing them into the conversation. So when we start talking to physicians in that way and letting them get a voice, it's a big difference. Yeah, one of the things I've often asked CISOs is where they feel that their responsibility ends uh, and where sort of the larger entity that's supposed to deal with disasters and emergencies, because there's an entity in all health systems, I forget what it's called, but they're supposed to manage the overall emergency. One type of emergency could be a hurricane, right. could be whatever, and one of them could be a cyber incident. So I've been told that folks like yourself will work with that larger umbrella entity to Make sure they understand different scenarios that could happen. For Here's what might happen for a cyber incident. And then those folks essentially should take the ball and run with it, right? And make sure that if the organization had to go to paper, that they could function. So my question to you is, does that make sense? And, and kind of in a general way, when it comes to disaster preparedness or business continuity around a cyber incident, how far do you have to take the ball before you say, okay, I've done my part now. You guys got to, I'm not going to make sure you know where, where the paper is and the copiers have ink. Right. So, right. Yeah. That's a great question. Great, great point. So in my last organization, that's exactly what happened. We, uh, we said we will do the business impact analysis. We will provide some draft copies or some, some, some templates on your business continuity plan, right? Here's a great plan. Uh, if you want to use it, we even gave workshops. We did these quarterly workshops where we would, ask, let them ask questions. And we had the templates there and, and help them fill them, but we're not going to do it for you. And we're not going to keep it up to date. That's your job. You need to make sure your business continuity uh, plan is up to date. Make sure you know where it's at. Make sure you drill it, all of those things. And also make sure that I have my business continuity disaster recovery manager have a seat on the safety committee. So we have the hospital has a safety committee that like you're talking about, and there's a a, a person in every seat from the different parts of the organization. And so that a- annually when they build out their 
your tabletop exercises, there's a cyber event built into those as well. Mm -hmm. Or if they say, hey, we, we're going to do one for Tornado. Well, guess what? Tornado also does. Takes out networks and power yeah. and other things. So it's also not just, oh, well, we, we lost part of the building. But that might be the power grid area of the building. You know, let's talk. Let's think what all would happen. Um, and so you can't just not just about moving patients from one part of the building to another. It could also mean network outage at the same time. So can we dual roll this this tabletop? And that has been uh, you know effective as well for them to think outside because you've got power people in there, power space and cooling people in the in those tabletops. But in the past, we've lacked having the cyber side of the house. You know, somebody from IT. So I think you have to have a seat on those committees and talk through it. But you're absolutely right. I think there's got to be a decision line. And it, I'm also seeing that I'm starting to hear that shatter uh, across the cyber spectrum as well around the risk level, right? Or the risk area. Where is it uh, I, a cyber risk and organizational risk? So every organization has a risk you know, person, whether it's mm -hmm. a C-level right. person or a director of uh, hospital risk. In, and, and so, you know, we, we hear it now from uh, American Medical Association said or American yeah, Medical Association, I think it is. It said cyber safety is patient safety or cybersecurity is patient safety. Right. And we, we know that cyber risk is a healthcare risk or a, or a hospital risk or an organizational risk. So shouldn't our risk then be reported to the operational or the organizational risk manager or director or chief, shouldn't they be tracking that? If it's a number one risk, like we, we got a major problem here with our data center or with whatever, it's massive. Is Shouldn't that be on their radar? Shouldn't that be an organizational risk? And it should. I would think so. Yeah, and it should. And so I think a lot of organizations still haven't ra raised and risen to that level to where the organizational risk person is in alignment with the, uh, you know, IT risk person. You know, they're not working hand in glove. I wonder so if you said what what is the most likely scenario of disaster that could disrupt our operations so we can't provide services. I mean, I don't know if, if depending on some parts of the country, a tornado is more likely than a ransomware event. But in general, I would think right. a cyber event would be the number Much one most likely, likely thing That's to right. cease your operations. That's right. So then yeah, for I mean, that we, not to report up doesn't make sense. That's right. Yeah, I'm in Tupelo, Mississippi, and I'm from West Texas, where tornado tornado alley. But I live in Tupelo, Mississippi, right now, and I'm telling you, every single year we have a tornado touchdown in our region, uh, in our operating region, and so they're very, very acutely aware of the tornado, uh, you know, tornado threat here. But at the same time, um, we haven't had a tornado take out the dead air center. We haven't had the tornado really take out any of our hospitals. We haven't had any of that. You know, it's touched down, it's hit neighborhoods and it's hit towns and we've been affected by it. Our, our neighbors have been affected by it. Our patients have been affected by it, but we've not had this disruption of continuity of operations because of the tornado. But on the other hand, cyber has affected us, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and so you're absolutely right. I mean, it, the likelihood is so much higher for cyber and yet those operational risk uh, people, aren't even thinking about it. And whose fault is that? Going back to extreme ownership, that's our fault. That's my fault, right? That's our CISO's yeah. fault. That's, well, you know what I'm saying? Of getting them to understand. Have we had that lunch with them to say, hey, listen, I want to be your best friend. Let me show you. You think you can't sleep at night now? Guess what? You're, you're about to really sleep less, right? Let me show you some stuff. And then show them the metrics. Show them the numbers. Because I think a lot of times, too, is that they don't look at the same periodicals, the same websites, the same Twitter feed, whatever that we do. And so they're not they think, oh, yeah, I, I know there's a cyber threat. But, um, you know, what's happened once or twice a year somewhere in California, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, are they really seeing the same news that we're seeing? Because we keep up with it every day. I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I really think that 
the perspective of a lot of folks uh maybe you know if systems go down well let's go to lunch and they'll be back up and but it's not it's not let's continue operations somehow it's like well whatever until they come back up we'll just yeah we had a we had an outage one time at an organization i used to work at we had an outage one time and the clinic people just shut down and went home and 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 so they just they canceled all their appointments went home right and it's like what i mean well we gotta wait on it that was the that was their 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 business continuity plan was wait on it (laughs) it was one-liner you know (laughs) i really think so because i think i think unless you're really plugged into the news you know, most outages are an hour, two hours, That's something's right. up. So it's inconceivable of weeks. It's inconceivable of, no, we actually need to keep running this business, but we don't have our systems. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I, I've been in, a, uh, you know, I, I screamed and holler when I came here about making sure that even our Microsoft 365 environment was backed up. Because by the way, in case you don't know, they that's not automatic. You've got to pay for that. That's okay. separate from Microsoft. So people just automatically assume, oh, I got AWS, I've got Azure, I've got, you know, whatever. It's all good. Uh, yeah, just because you're in Azure, just because you're in AWS doesn't mean all the security's there and it's all backed up, right? You still got to do those things. And uh, but I because I have been when uh, Microsoft crashes and you yeah. lose email. And you know what we thought? I'm not kidding. We thought, well, you know, if your email crashes, just pick up the phone and call somebody, man. I mean, big deal. You're not going to have email. We did not realize how much people relied on their on their uh, calendar. I mean, the oh, calendar yeah. shut oh, down yeah. everything. I mean, it's insane the amount of stuff that's on our calendar until we realized, until that thing went away. And when I mean you lose all your emails, you lose your calendars, you and your lose contacts. all your files, your contacts, your contacts with all gone. the phone numbers. That's, That's right. where all the phone numbers live. Everything's gone. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was it was a uh, devastating. Uh, when you have that event, then you start realizing, you know, okay, we got a problem, um, and we need to really uh, look at every system that way. And you realize why that instinct is to say, all right, let's just go to lunch, and it hopefully yep. it'll be up. That's right. Can. Oh yeah, yeah. We lose. Well, and, and so when you start looking at that from a business impact analysis on each application, uh, I think a lot of times. If people, ha- if somebody on the team who's doing BIAs have never been through an outage, never been through an event, um, if nobody's in that room's been there, they're going to think they're going to say the same thing I did years ago. Oh yeah, email. They can just please email. They can just pick up the phone and call somebody, right? You just you blow it off because you've never you don't we don't understand um, how how impactful. And so those of us who've been in the business a long time and have experienced some of these things, we have an op- obligation then, a responsibility then to try to craft that message to those clinicians, to those executives, to IT um, about the threat, about the, re- the the experience of what would happen if this doesn't, you know, not just chicken little the hairs on fire, right. but break it down exactly yeah. what's going to happen, you know. Listen, we're at a, a half hour where I wanted to keep it. I am going to steal you one more question, and then okay. I'm going to let you go. It is an amazing a half hour went by so fast. Um, rurals. So you know, you, you, there's a lot. There's a lot of policy stuff going on now. I get the sense that more and more policy stuff going on. I feel like there's a groundswell of of sentiment among cyber folks that the government is going to have to do more. That especially with rural, hey, we just don't have the resources with the with the adversaries we're dealing with. Um, and almost like a sentiment of, hey, there's nation state actors out there coming after my health system, no matter how big it is. I'm not as big as a country with right. dedicated cyber criminals or whatever you're going to put it. Do you get the feeling um, that there is a little bit of a groundswell of, hey, you're going to have to help us out here uh, from from the government in some sense? 
Yeah, and I'm helping to push that swell um, because I, you know, I, I used to be in the government. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, one of my pet peeves is that, you know, that I now I'm on the I'm on the opposite side. I'm on the on the, the civilian side, and I'm in one of these uh, critical infrastructure programs. And, and by the way, we're the most targeted of the critical infrastructure programs, healthcare. And yet, if I get breached, guess what happens? Now the federal government, not only I've got to pay for all that crap, you know, that just got breached and I've got to deal with all that mess, but now I could get fined by SEC or OCR or, you know, whoever, you know, I could have the secret service on my back. I mean, I've got all of these regulatory bodies coming after me as well. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important that, you know, we talk about, go back to this. Uh, when I was in the government, I did work on a subcommittee for the critical infrastructure program. And one of the things that we tried to do is explain, this was 15, 20 years ago, trying to explain to people who didn't understand cyber back then, if it's a kinetic warfare and a missile was coming in from China and it was going to hit the, you know, to San Francisco, let's say, nobody would expect that the local sheriff's responsible for defending San Francisco. You know, from a missile attack right. from China. Everybody right. understands whose responsibility that is. It's right. the federal government. And yet in cyber, we have, like you said, nation states that are launching, you know, nation state attacks on our critical infrastructure, on a hospital. And yet I'm expected to defend myself as if I was, you know, the government, the federal government. Uh, and yet I can't do any operational stuff. I just have to have defense and I've got to do that. And to your point, some of us are very fortunate and have some resources, but a lot of rural healthcare has none. They mm -hmm. don't have any resources. They can barely keep the, I mean, we're, I saw today an article, three or four hospitals shutting down this month. Mm -hmm. I mean, just completely mm -hmm. closing down. Don't have resources, period, to keep the doors open, much less yeah. spend it on, on cyber defense. So it is definitely something that I'm hearing across the spectrum with cybersecurity folks saying we've got to have help. Uh, and I think they're doing some to address it. CISA, you know, is another is an organization that's really starting to work on some of those uh, for resourcing, but they've got to do more, I think. Yeah, it's scary. It'll put you out of business, right? Absolutely. It can put you out of business. If, if, Absolutely. If you're anywhere close to being, you know, your margin, um, they'll finish you off. It's scary. Yep. Yeah, yep. it is. And And unfortunately, in these rural communities, when you say business, it's not just business, it's it's the patients are out. I mean, we've got areas in Mississippi where if a woman needs OB services, she'll have to drive two or three hours because those hospitals have closed down. They don't offer OB services in some areas. And so uh, it, it's it, we're talking about patient safety for sure. All right, Phil, that was wonderful. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, great stuff there. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate you having me. Yeah.